It's great to see everybody. I've been looking forward to coming, always look forward to coming. It's because Pastor Walker takes me out for dinner. So I come for the food. Uh, But it's a, a joy to be here, but it's not a joyful time. Um, I'm glad that I'm here. You know, God's been very good to me. Uh, The last couple days, I just flew in from Dallas today, but I was actually speaking in Houston. And um, I was at a very friendly Messianic congregation on Saturday morning. Because Saturday morning, I woke up early, as I usually do, and already my inbox was flooded, my messages were flooded, uh, by chosen people, staff members, and, and friends who were talking about uh, the missiles that started uh, hitting at 6.30 a.m. on Saturday morning. It was the an- 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, and of course it was the Sabbath, and it was a part of Sukkot, which we're closing tonight, and it was it's called Shemini Atzeret, don't try and Shemini Atzeret means the, it's the eighth day or the, the additional day. Uh, Feast of Tabernacles is seven days. Then in Leviticus chapter 23, biblically, there's added another day, a day where it's only in one verse and there's not much we know about it except that we're not supposed to work and we're supposed to gather for worship. And that's all that it says. And then uh, Judaism has topped that off with one other holiday, and that's called Simchat Torah, the joy of the Torah. And this is a great holiday. It's one of my favorite holidays, and it's, it is a joyful holiday. In Israel, in America, we do it on two days, Shemini Atzeret and Simchat Torah. In Israel, it's all on one day. So not only was it Shemini Atzeret, it was the joy of the Torah day when the missiles started being fired at 6.30 in the morning in Israel. And uh, we have 30 staff members there. My wife, Sahab, and I have family there. Uh, our, our daughter used to live there. She's not living there at, at this point. A lot of her friends are there. And as of this moment, as far as we understand it, um, I think the number is somewhere around 600. I keep hearing on the news. The number is really about 800. Uh, Our director in Israel, Michael Zinn, who's a Ukrainian Jewish guy, who's been there for many, many years. Um, You know, everybody has friends and intelligence in Israel. And Michael's got friends and intelligence. And so Michael's been feeding me every couple of hours new numbers. And uh, we think that there's probably over 150 uh, people that have been taken as hostages. And Israel has never experienced this before. That's what Prime Minister Netanyahu keeps saying, which is true. And of course, we also mourn because there's already three or 400 uh, uh, people in Gaza, Palestinians in Gaza, who have died, most of whom are not part of Hamas. They're innocent victims. And uh, there's been at least 25 Israeli soldiers that have been killed. I think you could probably quadruple that number. And a bunch of the Israeli soldiers have been 
taken into uh, to Gaza, and that's not going to go well for them. So imagine it would be sort of like New Brunswick taking every, you know, coming into Hamilton Square and taking people captive. I mean, it's, it's, there's no, you know, we talk about the wall, and if you've been to Israel, maybe you've seen the wall, but the wall is very minimal. You know, people just walk in. It's, the borders are sometimes more secure with electrified fences and guards and things like that. But the, uh, the terrorists, and I will call them terrorists, I'd rather not call them Palestinians because I'm as Zionistic as they come. I am very, very Jewish. I'm very, very loyal to the state of Israel. But to think that all Palestinians are terrorists is not true. And it's not fair. They're not. And so the terrorists came in. And uh, they came in by raft, by sea. And they came in by glider. And uh, they came in through tunnels that we still don't know exactly where all of those are. And they just started shooting. And the communities that are very nearby uh, Gaza, maybe you keep hearing the name of one of them. Uh, I'll say it's Sederot, so you, it sounds like it's spelled S-E-D-E-R-O-T, but Sderot, Strot, you know, there's uh, usually the way it's said by Israelis. Um, I would say that 80% of the people who live there are Russian Jewish immigrants. And uh, most of them are probably 60 and above, or maybe 70 and above, a lot of them. And uh, we've had intensive ministry in that little border town for many, many years. It took us 10 years before we saw our first elderly Russian Jewish Holocaust survivor come to faith. And now, of course, there's been quite a few that have come to the Lord. And we have extensive ministries there. You heard about Ofikim, O-F-I-K-I-M, another border town. Um, and um, we've had extensive ministry there. And um, so what I'm trying to say is we, we, we know the people there. We've spent a lot of time there. And the terrorists walked along the streets and they just started shooting people. And I'm talking about old men and old women and children, men and women, and they just shot them. Maybe the worst thing that's happened so far is that a whole group uh, of young people, a couple thousand, uh, were having a Israeli-style rave concert uh, in a natural uh, uh, in the south of Israel, which is kind of greater Tel Aviv, and then going towards the uh, Beersheba, Be I don't even know how to say it in English, uh, but near Beersheba and other towns. And it's just kind of in the middle of nowhere, and uh, which is where you would have something like this, of course. And people were camping out and having a great time. And it looked like the terrorists had identified that exact event. And a whole team of them came in, and all the young people were there, sitting there, listening to music, enjoying themselves, and they opened fire. They went tent by tent and threw hand grenades into the tents. And so uh, these are people who could be your children. And they were blown up, and they were shot, 
and uh, mercilessly. So I would say, uh, of course, Netanyahu has declared war, but it's not like a war. The reason it's not like a war is because the people that were being mercilessly killed were not soldiers. There were some soldiers who were late to the game, really. Now, you could say every Israeli is a soldier. Well, that is true to some degree. But these young people were unarmed soldiers. They weren't there to fight. They were there to listen to music. And we think that uh, probably a few hundred of them were killed. And so now we have a war, and uh, unlike any other war, and it's going to be really difficult because uh, you've probably seen the Israeli Air Force bombing places in Gaza City and in Gaza, and I know that some of the world paints Israelis as monsters and as land grabbers and all sorts of other things and merciless, but it's not true. Actually, they're some of the most ethical and restrained military in the world. And so they're, you know, they're trying to hit military uh, targets and so on. But of course, the terrorists um, basically have their headquarters uh, right next to a hospital and, and so on. And so they make it very difficult. So will there be collateral damage? I, I, I think that's a cold term to use of human life. But there will be innocent Palestinians killed just like innocent Israelis. And so that's what's happening right now. And um, CPM's trying to minister, but the Israeli government is telling, our, it's telling everybody to stay put. There are still um, roaming terrorist bands. Uh, not everybody has been, uh, not everything has been uh, captured or, or, or completed, no, all the military actions. Uh, you know what the settlements are. These are uh, areas in, quote-unquote, the territories, Judea and Samaria and other parts. And, uh, and so they've been directly attacked and um, mercilessly attacked. They don't have the guards. They're, non-mil- they're non-military settlements, you know. They're not base camps. You know, they're where people live. And so the terrorists just marched in and slaughtered people and went house to house, finding people and shooting them and killing them. And so that's the situation that we saw yesterday, continued today. In one settlement, the terrorists had 50 Israelis uh, huddled in, a, in the cafeteria uh, where they had some common meals. And um, I don't know what happened. Nobody knows what happened to them yet. I'm sure the military knows what's happened. But I think they're trying to keep it a little under wraps. The military IDF has gone into some of these uh, towns, there, I think there were 16 or 14 uh, of these places that were uh, settlement towns that were under siege, and I think they've liberated maybe four or five. So we don't know what's happening with the rest of them. So this is going to go on. How long will this war now last? 
my guess. There's going to be, an, I think that already there, you know, the, the UN is meeting tomorrow. It's kind of a toothless tiger, you know. And uh, there are neighbors. They're good neighbors, but they don't do much, you know. And they're right down the block. They're not supposed to do much. They're just supposed to talk. And, uh, and that they do. And so nothing's going to be solved uh, with that. And... It's the Middle East, dear friends. The only language people speak for the most part is force. And so it's going to be force against force. And everybody's going to suffer. So will there be an early peace settlement? We pray for that, right? Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They will prosper love thee, Psalm. 122 verse 6. So we'll, we'll pray for peace. But will there be peace? Well, if you were an Israeli, how would you feel? This, if anybody was, if, if anybody in their right mind was thinking about creating peace between Israelis and Palestinians, the Hamas just set it back by 25 years because the Israelis of this generation will never forget what's done any more than I've forgotten 9-11 as a New Yorker. And so it's, it's not going to happen. So how long is it going to last, this war? Well, we don't know. Um, maybe, it'll, maybe for some reason it'll, there'll be a speedy recovery, but not until the IDF pounds uh, Gaza because they won't make peace. Uh, One of the real vulnerabilities there, and we'll talk about this in just a second, one of the real vulnerabilities is the North. And so right now, of course, uh, Iran is funding both Hamas and Hezbollah. And so right now, there are real concerns about the North. Israel has moved all sorts of troops up to the northern border with Lebanon. But, and there have been a few skirmishes. But right now it is clear because they have 10 times the missiles and military force supplied by Iran. And I'm not a military expert, but I have a feeling Russia's involved. Well, you know Russia's involved. Okay. And so they have not quite unlimited military armaments, but uh, they have more sophisticated missiles and they have 10 times the missiles and they've got 10 times the tanks. I mean, they so outnumber what Gaza has, it's not even funny. And so if they stay out of it, that's good. If they jump into it, and by the way, Israeli troops have already crossed into Lebanon, just so you know. Did you you hear about it? They've... They've crossed over because there were a few, um, a few missiles that were, were thrown in and Israel quickly uh, went to shut it down. And so we'll see what happens. But if that happens, that's trouble. So if you want to know the geopolitical uh, warfare uh, issues, you've got Gaza, which is Hamas. You've got the West Bank, Judea, and Samaria. 
which is Abbas, which is the Palestinian PLO, PLA, Palestinian uh, Leadership, leadership uh, Liberation. What is it? What's the A stand for? What is it? Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's true too. Um, uh, we, the U.S. still considers them a terrorist group, just so you know, as does Israel, as do I. And so you have two groups in Israel. They're in Israel. I've passed by, well, I've eaten lunch in Judea or Samaria on the West Bank and uh, many times. So it's, I mean, you're right on top of each other. And the wall is just a little strip, okay? They're really right on top of each other. And then you have outside of Israel, which is Lebanon, and you have Hezbollah. If all three attack at the same time, then it's going to be really bad. So right now, it's really bad, but it's just Gaza. It's just Hamas. But if the others kick in, then we're all in trouble. Not just Israel, but we're all in trouble. Now, how do I feel about trouble? Well, you know, whenever I have this discussion, I think, like most discussions, as Bible believers, we need to root and ground the way we view life, the way we view history, the way we view the future. We have to root and ground it in Scripture, don't we? And the Bible has a lot to say about what's to come. Prophecy's not as popular these days, but that doesn't mean prophecy's not true. And, and I don't blame anybody because a lot of what we talk about when it come, in terms of prof, what the prophet said is going to take place is not pleasant. But it helps us understand where we are. So, before we get into a little bit more on what's going on and what I want to talk to you about the work that's being done in the midst of it all, I want you to open your Bibles. Zechariah chapter 12. The prophet Zechariah's name means God remembers. And in this instance, in the book of Zechariah, we're going to see where God remembers the unconditional, unfailing covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the Jewish people. Immemorial. This is a contract unlike other contracts. It's more like a marriage contract than it is a business contract because this covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, is without conditions. And you, of course, remember verse 3. I'll bless those who bless thee, curse those who curse thee, and through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. In that covenant, God linked the choosing of the Jewish people as a bridge of redemption to a dark and fallen world. And you can't understand what is ahead for the nations without understanding what's ahead for Israel. And you can't understand what's ahead for Israel without understanding the nations. Because the nations, or the Gentiles, and Israel are intertwined in Scripture. 
And so Zechariah chapter 12, uh, we're, at, we're at the end of it all. So this is what's going to take place if all three parties attack Israel and more. This is what's going to happen. So Zechariah chapter 12, I'm going to uh, read from verse 7. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And look at verse 9. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that have come against Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, this hasn't happened yet. This is future. So as the nations, so to speak like vultures, surround Israel, ready to pounce and destroy the nation of Israel for whatever reasons they have to destroy the nation of Israel, God who made an unconditional covenant with the sons and daughters of Abraham cannot allow that to happen. Because the future of Israel is that important. God is not done with the Jewish people. I know you believe that. But there's a reason why God's not done with the Jewish people. It's because the Jewish people still have something very important to do. And we read about it in verse 10. So the nations are about to destroy the the children of Israel. And in verse 10 we read, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that they will look upon me whom they have pierced. So at that final moment when the Jewish people have their backs against the wall and the nations of the world are about to destroy the Jewish people, God can't let it happen any more than he could let Abraham stick a knife into the heart of his son. Because it would have destroyed God's program, God's plan, God's purposes. And so God can't let it happen. And so in that day, when Israel is about to be destroyed, God takes the first step of intervention. And he pours out his spirit of grace, which is the Hebrew word chen. And that grace causes the Jewish people to plead for mercy. Which, by the way, is only one Hebrew word, but translated so that English speakers can understand it better. But the Hebrew word is tachanunim, which is a, based on the word grace. And here's how it works, and it's important. That when God pours his spirit of grace upon the Jewish people, it causes the Jewish people to yearn or seek more grace. That's what it means to supplicate. When you supplicate, you've been motivated by God's grace to seek for more grace. And so the Jewish people seek for more grace. And what happens? They look on me. Of course, that's the Messiah, Jesus. They look upon me, whom they have pierced. Now, we're not going to get into a great debate on who killed Jesus, are we? Okay? Last time I checked, he was God in the flesh. And the last time I read Isaiah 53, it was preordained before the foundations of the the earth 
700 plus years before he ever set foot on the earth permanently, it was ordained that he would go to the cross and suffer and die as an atonement for our sins. So neither the Jews or the Romans killed Jesus. Jesus laid his life down. But he was pierced. And the Hebrew word is dakar, which means to be pierced through to death. It's what you do with a sword. It's one of the words, actually, in Hebrew that basically means death. So they look on me, whom they have pierced, and then what happens? They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And then mourning breaks out all throughout Israel. And the Jewish people that are left after a season of incredible tribulation, the Jewish people begin turning to Jesus by tribe, by family. Now what happens? Well, chapter 13, verse 1 On that day there will be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So the hymn writer was correct, huh? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. It's right here in the text. And so we understand that these Jewish people who look unto him who was pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son are turning to Jesus as Savior and recognizing that his piercedness, his atonement was for them as well as others. The Jewish people come to Christ as a nation. And what happens then? Glad you asked. Chapter 14. Just keep going. In chapter 14, looking at verse 3, then the Lord will go out and fight against the nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Listen to this. And on that day, verse 4, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, and a wide valley will be in between them. I love walking up the southern steps. Many of you have been to Israel now. And walking up the southern steps and then looking to my right, which is really west because the eastern gate is, well, you have to be looking east from the Mount of Olives. And this is beautiful old hotel up there. And I love it, walking up with people who have never seen it before. And I said, so which side of the, of the valley when the mountains split, do you think the uh, restaurant will be on, you know? The day is coming when his feet, whose feet? Jesus' feet. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives will be split in two. He'll conquer the enemies of Israel and the enemies of God. He will fulfill the Abrahamic covenant and curse those who curse the Jewish people and will bless the world by reigning on his rightful Davidic throne. And that is our future. 
Now, is that future going to come without pain? Obviously not. What we're seeing now, actually one day, will be far worse. Now, we can just, we can say, you know, and every generation of Christians have said it, the faithful say he can come any moment and, you know, ostensibly believe it, but not really, you know, uh, because if, if we, we would behave a little differently if we really believed he was coming tomorrow. I mean, if you're honest with yourself, you won't get to spend your IRA money, just so you know. But one day he is going to come. And you know what? It's going to be like the days of Noah. Actually, we will be expecting it, sort of believing it, but we'll be doing normal life. We'll be shopping and, and taking care of life. And in the middle of normalcy, Jesus will return. And so, where do I think we are? Well, I mean, first of all, it's, it's pure pain, the whole thing. It's horrible, it's terrible. You know, anybody who finds anything redeeming about this current war and what's been going on the last few days, you, you need counseling. Okay, there's nothing redeeming about it. But what can we learn from it as believers? That it can happen in a heartbeat. Israelis went to sleep on Friday night. Most of the Orthodox Jews were in their Sukkot, in their booths, having meals with their families. They went to bed, expecting that on the Sabbath they would continue their day of rest. And instead of rest, they were showered with over 3,000 missiles and their children were murdered. It can happen at any moment. So what do I learn from this? Well, number one, I, don't, I didn't learn that the word of God is true, that I, that I believe. But the word of God is really relevant, isn't it? I mean, if you want to know what's going on, don't, don't go streaming something. Read the Bible. The Bible is true. And we stand on the word of God and we understand life through the lens of scripture, don't we? And if not, we need to. And so I say that, uh, now I know that this church believes correctly about the rapture, so God bless you, thank you. I finally don't have to persuade anybody, that's good. I'll just take it for granted for a moment. Am I still correct in all this? Thank you. If you change your position, I'd like to think about being supported. If that's, no, I'm just kidding. But I like to think that we're living our lives on a second coming hair trigger. Any moment, it can happen. And, it, and, it, and it's going to be a lot of trouble and a lot of pain. And even if we don't go through the tribulation period, leading up to it is still going to be painful. You realize that. And so 
when something like this happens, we need to act. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. But the other thing for our own lives is we need to hold this world a whole lot more loosely. It's definitely not our home. We're definitely just passing through. It's definitely still dark. It's definitely still in the hands of the God of this world who's no friend of ours. But we know that as difficult as it might be and painful at times, that the victory has been won. And that's the news that we share, the good news we share with our friends and neighbors and loved ones. Right now, I I asked some of our staff members in Israel uh, what the mood is. I know that sounds crazy, but what's what's the general mood in Israel? They're scared to death. We have the image of brave Israelis, right? They're scared to death. Anybody here ever lived in an area with earthquakes? Have you? Yeah. So uh, I married an Argentine LA girl, uh, Zahava. And I still remember our, and I, and I was in seminary and she was in college. So I, we were living in Los Angeles in a very small apartment. Uh, from the kitchen, I could whisper and she could hear me in the bedroom. But I had my bookshelves. You know, and they were, they were right there. And one morning, I was sitting on the floor for some reason near the, the heat, which came up from the bottom. And I was sitting there, and, and it began rumbling. I had never been in an earthquake before. And it just started rolling, and my books started falling off the, the shelves. And I must admit, it was quite the experience. And I shouted to Zahava. And I said, honey, it's an earthquake. She said, that's not a big one. Don't worry about it. (laughs) She had been through the big ones. (laughs) And it was big enough for me. When the earth you count on being stable starts moving, it makes you feel very vulnerable, let me tell you. Of course, then as a family, we lived in San Francisco and went through the, a couple of big ones. And the Israelis have gone through. They're comparing it to 9-11, but, you know, cause, but it's really been an earthquake. The, the foundation of their, of their lives has been shaken, and they're afraid, and they feel vulnerable, and they are. And they are. And so that is what we're dealing with uh, right now. Um, So I'd like to take you through a little bit of what Chosen People's doing uh, in Israel. And this will help you pray uh, for us. Again, Psalm 122, verse 6. Pray for the shalom of Jerusalem, the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. It's an interesting Hebrew word for prosper. doesn't have anything to do with wealth. It actually has to do with personal well-being. It's a very distinctive Hebrew word. And that word means that you, you will feel better and safer 
and, but not necessarily richer when you pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And so when you pray for the shalom of Jerusalem, it comes right back at you. It's really what, what it's saying. And so we can pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Who do we pray for? Well, let's start with the top, right? So uh, could this bring down the Netanyahu government? Some say maybe yes. Some say maybe yes. What charges of corruption couldn't do, what massive divisions within Israel politically, and they are massive, a war could do. Everybody's asking the question, how could Israel, with its sophisticated intelligence services, with Shabach and Shin Bet and Mossad, how could Israel have missed it with embedded spies within uh, Gaza and throughout, which is true. I guess we'll find out, but it's going to take a little time. And, I, and a lot of us are interested to know how Israel missed it but Israel missed it. It's kind of like the Yom Kippur War. Missed the signals. Uh, you can't see it all that well, but um, the prime minister really does rely on his cabinet, and he's got a very mixed cabinet because in order to become prime minister, you understand Netanyahu was not elected. His party, the Likud, was elected. And they had a majority. 66 seats, I believe. They had a majority. So it's a parliamentary government. And so what happened was his, his party got into power. He's the head of his party, so he's the prime minister. And that's how it happens. And so those who make up that coalition are very important. And um, so you have ultra right wing, I mean, well, you don't really have right and left wing in Israel, by the way. I even, I even used it, but it's not true. It's not right and left. In Israel, it's basically ultra orthodox and everybody else. It's really what it is. And so Netanyahu had to form a coalition with ultra orthodox political parties in order to form a government and get enough seats so that he could be prime minister. And that has changed the contours of Israeli society. And by the way, it's not easier on us as believers, it's harder. Because a lot of the ultra-Orthodox, well, they don't exactly love us. And uh, imagine if Lakewood just, all of Lakewood moved into Hamilton Square, you know what I mean? So, I mean, uh, we love them, they don't always love us. And, uh, and so, uh, we're going to have, we, we have problems. I can't go into it now, but there's been a lot of problems with that. The opposition, Yair Lapid, they just formed a unity government. What they couldn't do normally, a war did. So the unity government with Lapid, his party, and Likud, they just, they are the ones who declared war together. Here are some of the people who don't love us a lot. Moshe Gaffney, he's a member of parliament. Um, it's about the sixth time 
he tried to get a law through Knesset that said that if you converted to Christianity that you can't become a citizen of Israel. And it's about the sixth time that it was voted down. So it never gets voted in. But Gaffney keeps trying. And so pray for him. I think he's got a thing about believers. Maybe he's, maybe he's under conviction. I don't know. These are some of the leaders of Israel that you wouldn't normally meet, but you should pray for, the leaders of major universities in Israel. Israel's a small country, about 9 million people, 7.4 million Jewish people. And so, you know, you, you have... And, and by the way, can Palestinians go to uh, Israeli universities? You know, people ask me that. Of course they can. I mean, yeah, I mean... So is there interaction between young Israelis and young Palestinians? Of course. I mean, they're friends. You know, I, I know it sounds nuts in the way we present it, but of course, they're friends. And the believers are all witnessing to each other. The Arab believers are witnessing to Jewish people, and Jewish people are witnessing to Arabs. It's, it's kind of normal life. Some more... These are very important people. They are shaping the minds of Israelis. And then, of course, Halevi, who's chief of general staff. I would not want to have his job uh, right now, but we need to pray for them. And then pray for them. We need to pray for the leaders of Hamas and Hezbollah. And... uh, I'm keeping it up there so some of you who say I'll never remember their names can write them down. A little bit about chosen people. So about 17 years ago we bought a uh, center in Jerusalem. Did you guys go there when you? Yeah. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. It's great for short-term missions. You should get a church short-term missions program going. Bring, bring your young people to Israel. Okay, some people can come if they're old, too. They won't. But it's, uh, it's a beautiful facility. It's right, it's about a 25-minute walk from the, uh, from the old city. Um, and or if you walk faster, it could be faster. Uh, so it's very, very close, but it's a beautiful facility and gives us great opportunities uh, to minister. So Chosen People Ministries, you know, we, we've been around since 1894. You know that, correct? Yeah, and you know that I'm not the founder of Chosen People. Okay, or the well-preserved founder. Uh, so we were in Israel in the 30s before Israel was a modern nation. And of course, our first missionaries in Israel were all British because it was under the British mandate. Still kind of a Muslim country, but under the British mandate. And chosen people has changed or morphed with every wave of immigration because in the 30s, there may have been a couple hundred thousand Jewish people in Israel. Now there's almost seven and a half million. So there's been growth. And let me tell you, it has not actually been the growth, growth by biological growth except for the religious. 
who average about nine to 12 children each family. Uh, they say that the religious will, it's already over 20% of the Jewish population in Israel, that the ultra-religious will be the most prominent group of Jewish people within Israel and even in the United States in the next 20 to 30 years, just so you know. So uh, we uh, had a lot of great ministry with uh, people who, uh, Jewish people survived the Holocaust. Actually, chosen people missionaries were based it, at displaced person camps where, imagine, if you survived the Holocaust, where did you go? If you went home, you'd find other people, non-Jewish people, living in your homes. And so Jewish people were totally displaced, even if they survived. And so many of them were trying to get into Israel, but they weren't allowed into Israel. So there was a tough position, huh? And so many of them ended up in these displaced persons camps, which actually some of them lasted until the early 50s. They were, they were refugee camps. And chosen people ministries went into France and parts of Germany and parts of uh, other countries and ministered to those in displaced persons camps and helped many of them get to Israel. So we helped so many get to Israel that, of course, our missionaries had to follow them to Israel. And that's how a lot of the work really began in Israel. And that work was in Yiddish, which is what your Hasidic friends speak. And so it was a Yiddish ministry. It's nice having only one language for Jewish people from 20 different countries, you know. It was easier. And then you had more secularization and more people born in Israel and the population began growing. And then once Israel seemed pretty stable and Hebrew speaking was kind of invaded by 1.4 million Russians speakers, Ukrainians and others from the former Soviet Union. In Israel today, it is said that 60% of the believers in Israel speak Russian as their first language. So there's been a marvelous movement of the Holy Spirit among Russian Jewish pe- Russian-speaking Jewish people. To the right is the bu- is not the building, but the commercial space that chosen people purchased. I know that because I paid the money and signed the 100 pages of documents. And so, uh, and I'll tell you why we, we, we bought it in just a moment. And I only need a million and a half dollars. I'm hoping that will happen tonight, really. Um, there, we do a lot at Chosen People today. I love our ministry to Holocaust survivors. I'm sad because when I started 26 years ago, as president of Chosen People, we had about 350,000 Holocaust survivors. Now we're down below 50,000. But boy, do we minister to those 90-year-olds. We love them and they love us. And uh, on the opposite end, we have kids' camps. And most of them are with uh, Russian uh, Jewish kids. It's kind of funny. The the grandparents raise the children because the parents need to work. And so the grandparents were raised atheists, so they don't care. <laughs> they don't care that we, that we believe in Jesus, you know. So 
we get to minister to the grandparents, sometimes to the parents, but a lot of times to the kids. Now, you can't minister to children in Israel, kids under 18, without parental permission. But the grandparents are happy to sign anything to get them to go to camp so they get a week's break. And so we have over 600 kids in camps every year. And I would say most of them are unbelieving kids, and we've seen a lot of these kids come to faith. It's been one of our most fruitful ministries. Uh, young adults, I'll talk about that in a moment. Living Waters, that's a mentoring ministry. Outreach Israel, that's where you want to send some of your young people to Israel with us and spend three weeks drinking really good uh, Arab coffee and talking to uh, Israelis about Jesus. Hey, it's great. It's fun. Uh, food pantries, we have to feed the poor. Refugees, we do a lot of that work. Um, you know, uh, it's been a tough time with the Ukrainian-Russian situation. I, you know, I can't believe we're going from one to the other, really. I mean, um, we've been so involved with, with it. And uh, by God's grace, we raised enough money to really take care. I, I don't even know how we did it, but, but God just provided enough money so that we could take care of the people who were fleeing the east in Ukraine, Mariupol, Zaprasia, uh, Kharkiv, um, and going west, because we have planted four congregations, mostly east, and there was nothing left to where a lot of these people were living. They came west, and they had nothing. So we've been supporting them for about 15 months now. And uh, we've had great ministries uh, with them. And uh, now they've about 100,000 have come to Israel. And believe it or not, 75,000 of them are from Russia. Or 70,000. And about 30,000, 35,000 are from Ukraine. We, all, we thought it would be reversed. And so uh, we've been having, fam we, we developed a strategy of having uh, family camps. And so we've now had about four family camps since uh, the emigration began of about 100 people each. And it's basically been half and half, half Russian, half Ukrainian. And we had no idea how that was going to work. We, we have a lot of Russian-speaking staff. And it's been great. They've gotten along. Uh, we've loved them, preached the gospel. And uh, we've just baptized a number of them. So it's, it's, it's incredible, really. Uh, we have a lot of websites. I don't have time to talk about it. But that one over there that you can't pronounce, La Omec. Uh, La Omec is a brand new website. I had to shut it down because in, I think it was four days, maybe three days, we had over 4,000 Israelis download a book about having, having good relationships with your spouse, with your kids, and so on. So it's, it's kind of existential apologetics, if you know what I mean. You know, we're, we're going towards human needs. Our next one is on anxiety. Only problem is, is we never trained our staff how to be relationship counselors. We're Bible people. You know, we give the gospel, expect people to get saved, and then helps their relationships, you know. But you can't just do it all like that. So it's not so easy. And so 
we had 4,000 people download the relationship booklet and want to chat with us and call us and email us, and we were not ready for it. I had to shut it down. So now we're bringing it back up. And we actually hired a, a Jewish-believing psychologist to pr provide training material for our staff and to train our staff on how to handle relationships and how to handle help people with anxiety, not, not as counselors, but, and then to give the gospel. So I was a little short-sighted on that one. Glad it worked. Sorry it didn't work as well as I would have liked, but it's a good problem to have. There's just some of our beautiful staff, and they're all over the country. CPM is a national ministry in Israel. We are from the Golan Heights to Haifa to Jerusalem to Tel Aviv down to the Negev Desert. Desert. So we are all over. People ask how many believers are there in Israel. There were under 10,000 in 2010 when I was first there in 1976. I think I walked away knowing almost every believer in Israel. I was there about a month while I was in seminary. And, most, and I'd say half of them were from Brooklyn, really. Now they're all Israelis. They were born, a lot of, most of them born and raised there, or their kids are born and raised there. And uh, the movement is really microwaving. Some people say there are as many as 50,000, but I tend to be conservative. Um, the Tel Aviv Messianic Center, uh, we have live concerts. This is a 1,600-square-foot facility in the heart of Ramat Gan, which is a suburb of Tel Aviv, but if you war walk 100 feet, you're in Tel Aviv. It's where, you, it's where you move. It's like Brooklyn. If you can't live in Manhattan if you have children because you, you don't have bedrooms for them. So you have to move to Brooklyn. And then, if you have more children, then you have to move to New Jersey. <laughs> and, and so, uh, we've, we, it, it's very urban. And, uh, and so, we rented a facility seven years ago. We only had one or two missionaries. Now we have 13 missionaries assigned to it. We wanted to start a congregation, only we couldn't because right now we hold 60 people and most, most of our outreach concerts, which happen twice a month, are getting about 120, 130 people. And we're praying against the evil fire marshal from coming in. And so if we started a congregation, we could do it except we'd have to ask parents to leave their children at home. And since we have a lot of children among our missionaries, I don't think they'd go for that one. And uh, my kids are out of the house. You know, leave them. You know, who needs them? You know, they have their own lives. But Jason has five boys, so, you know, he, he, won't, he runs the place. He won't do that. Uh, but with the new place, we will. So there are some of the concerts. It's a, it's a, we celebrate the holidays there. There's Rosh Hashanah. Um, this is a, a, a messianic group that they get, they're the ones that always get out 130 people. And you haven't lived till you've been in a room that holds 60 people with 130 people. And then a lot of other things. We do trips. We do have ESL courses. We have ministries to soldiers. We minister to children. We minister to the needy. We have our uh, young people come 
on short-term missions to minister to the needy. And this is Victoria, the wife of one of our missionaries. And where she is right now is on the southern border. And if you saw the rest of the pictures, it was filled with hundreds upon hundreds of younger people with families. And she was distributing baby food, bottles, diapers, and all sorts of other things that immediately everything shut down because of the war and they couldn't get anything. So we are shuttling it down from Jerusalem and from Tel Aviv. And so that's Victoria doing that. Now that's a conference room, it looks nice. That's an auditorium, that looks nice. And that's a coffee bar and a hangout place and that looks nice. And those are the drawings of our new center. We purchased it across the street from the 1600 square foot center, which is rented. And so we purchased 4,000 square feet across the street from our other center, right on the light rail. And I was looking for six years, couldn't find anything. Then one day I told our real estate agent that we were done looking, we're just gonna pray. And he said, okay. And uh, he walked out, came back, and he said, I think I found a place. It's across the street. Of course, my comment was, I should have fired you six months ago. And uh, no commission motivates everybody. And so it's the perfect spot. We were able to buy it. And uh, now we have begun the, it's, it's just an internal space. But we have an upstairs and a downstairs. So we'll be able to have our congregation We'll be able to have four or five rooms for children. We will have a conference room for adult Bible studies. The cafe will be open day in and day out. And so we are more excited than anything. How do I think the war will impact it? I think once things calm down a little bit, the war may not be over, but when they calm down, I think we're going to have more people at, at our center than ever before, is what I think. I actually think that God's been preparing us for this. And we get, I mean, 25% of any concert of the, of the young people will come, basically between 19 and 35. 25% are non-believers, maybe more. And so the Lord is doing a great thing. This should be done by June. We're going to dedicate it in December because I wanted to dedicate it on Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication. So we will dedicate it in the midst of dust and rubble and everything else. But that'll, that'll be good. And I'm your missionary, so you need to pray for me and, and my work. I have a big role in Israel. I'm the chairman of our nonprofit in Israel. Um, I'm there almost every month, every other month sometimes in Israel because uh, we have great leadership there. And maybe I don't need to be there as much, but I want to be there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I wanna, we, we, we want to help. And uh, so far, so this, this, is, this little facility in Tel Aviv, you know, just think Manhattan, okay? Uh, this little facility is a $6.5 million project. And so you can pray, but pray within reason because God's already given us a little over $5 million. And so we're down to about but who's counting, you know, uh, in in what we need. And and that's the best 
money, actually, because that's going to be spread out as we build. <laughs> so God's given me time. <laughs> and, uh, but we're very excited about it. Uh, we will now be, by far, the largest Messianic Jewish, Jewish Christian-owned facility in the greater Tel Aviv area, which has four and a half million people. Now, before you get too excited, there are only two other facilities. <laughs> and one's only can seat about 35 people, and the other one is almost out of the Tel Aviv area, and it's owned by the Baptists. <laughs> the good Baptists, the good Baptists. And it's owned by the Baptists. And uh, so we will be really the main one that's owned by believers right smack in the middle of the Tel Aviv, the center of the Tel Aviv area. And uh, I'll I'll tell you one last thing and then I will pray. I think if you see the, the future of the world as I see it through scripture, I see times being difficult. And I really believe that I, I, I believe that Christians will not go through the tribulation period. So there, you, my, I've showed you, shown you my hand, okay? So I, I don't believe that. But what I do believe is that it's going to be, there's going to be a lot that happens before then. But I really believe that during the most difficult of times, Jewish non-believers will be coming to faith, don't you? Hey, minimally 144,000, right? Well, where are they going to go to church? Did you think about that? (laughs) I did. (laughs) And so I hope they enjoy the center because they're going to need a place to go where they can be with one another and have fellowship because that's going to be a very hard time for these new believers. So call me a fanatic, but I really believe this book, and I know you do. So pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They will prosper. You'll have peace if you pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I promise you. God promises you. But in the midst of it all, there's going to be a lot of difficulty. But you know, Jesus said it, didn't he? Peace I give you, I leave with you, not as the world gives you. In the midst of great tribulation, we can't have peace. And that's one of the most powerful testimonies we can share with non-believers. That when everything seems to be going wrong, we have peace. Because it's a peace that only he can give, not as the world can give. It's his peace in us that's so powerful. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your loving kindness and mercy. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to think and pray about missions, Lord. It's your great commission, not our great commission. You've given it to us as a gift, as a privilege to go into all the world and make disciples. And Lord, I pray that you would help us make Jewish disciples and Gentile disciples disciples of, uh, of, from all the nations of the world, so that one day every tongue and every language, every culture will be represented before your throne, that men and women will be worshiping you, who maybe 
we have touched in one way or another, or they've been touched by people that we've touched with the glorious message of salvation through your son Yeshua, our Messiah. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem tonight, Lord. We pray for the chosen people team. We pray, Lord, for all the believers in Israel. And Lord, we pray for the nation, both Jews and Arabs, that they might find the one whom to know is life everlasting. We pray this all in his name. Amen.